Well, let's pray. Avinu, we thank you for your presence this morning. Thank you for your Yom Kippur Day of Atonement. Thank you um, for your forgiveness, for your atonement, for your great mercy on us, Lord. And I just pray that your word would go forth, that it would encourage everyone who hears it, O God, that um, you would speak to them by your still small voice what you would have for them, O God, in their hearts. Um, And in Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. Mark Chagall was a Jewish painter born in Belarus in a Hasidic village. He later grew up in Paris and became one of the most prominent painters of the 20th century. On biography.com it says, in 1977, this is toward the end of his life, Chagall received the Grand Medal of the Legion of Honor, France's highest accolade. That same year, he became one of only a handful of artists in history to receive a retrospective exhibition at the Louvre. He died on March 28, 1985, in Saint-Paul-de-Vence at age 97, leaving behind a vast collection of work, along with a rich legacy as an iconic Jewish artist and pioneer of modernism." Unquote. Chagall's dreamlike paintings are quintessentially Jewish. It is Chagall who painted the fiddler on the roof, the image which inspired the musical of the same title. We familiar with Fiddler on the Roof, yes. During the growing anti-Semitism in Europe leading up to the Holocaust, Chagall himself had to escape the Nazis' grasp in France and sought refuge here in America. At that time, he also began to paint the figure of Yeshua on the tree. A common theme in Christian art, but not so common in Jewish art. And remarkably, Chagall painted Yeshua with a unique Jewish context, and within the context of the suffering of the Jewish people at the time. This is the cover of a book. Um, we may know it's, the cover of the book is Intro, Introduction to Messianic Judaism, written by our own Rabbi David Rudolph. And the cover features one of Chagall's works. This is called Yellow Crucifixion, completed in 1943. Here is the painting on its own. So this is the painting that Rabbi David chose to put on the cover of his book. Does this painting seem Jewish or Christian? Here, Chagall imagines Yeshua dying on the tree. What is around his head? Not a crown of thorns, but the tefillin that observant Jews would wear. Yeshua is not the only central figure in this painting. Our eyes are also drawn to the Torah, that's right, and its relationship to Yeshua. The angelic figure carrying the Torah is blowing the shofar. Do we see that? As I mentioned in the Rosh Hashanah sermon, 
um, that I gave 10 days ago, the shofar is strongly associated with the Messiah. The shofar recalls the ram in the thicket who substituted as a sacrifice for Isaac. The shofar announces and paves the way for God's people to be in his holy presence. The shofar announces the king, Messiah, who will rule and reign over all the earth. The shofar is also closely connected with both Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. We blew the shofar 10 days ago, and we will blow it again uh, in the Ne'ilah service later today. Leviticus 25, verses 8 through 9, describes the year of the Yovel, commonly called the Jubilee. And this is what it says. Count off seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years, so that the seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpet, or we know in Hebrew that's shofar, sounded everywhere on the 10th day of the seventh month. That is, of course, today. On the day of atonement, sound the shofar throughout your land. I don't think it's too far of a leap to see the connection between the shofar and Yeshua on the tree that Shagal is making. Yom Kippur is the day of atonement. And according to scriptures, the Yeshua is our atonement. He is the fulfillment and embodiment of the Levitical feasts like Yom Kippur. Like the year of Jubilee, Yeshua, our shofar, sets us free on the day of atonement. Now, here at Tikvot, we're used to seeing and imagining Yeshua as a Jew. But imagine the world of Mark Chagall, the wider Jewish world of the early 20th century. This was unheard of. Nevertheless, we see in the painting, if we could pull the painting back up, we clearly, the earlier one, that's the next one, yes. Uh, we see in the painting the, sh the shofar. We see the Torah. We see Yeshua as a Jew on the tree. And all around him, we see suffering, the suffering of the Jewish people. This is during the time of the pogroms, during the time of the Holocaust that Chagall painted this. The paintings show Yeshua on the cross, and it represents suffering and atonement and disgrace. The paintings depict the pogroms and the Holocaust, but Chagall links them to the suffering Messiah on the tree. And suddenly, our suffering and disgrace as a people has a framework, a way to make sense of it. Chagall is reappropriating the image of the Christ, the Savior of the world, the Christian, and he's re-imaging Yeshua as Messiah, as the King, the suffering servant of Israel. This is another painting by Chagall. This is called The White Crucifixion, completed in 1938. It shows what is around Yeshua there. That, that is the talit, right? Again, he's surrounded by kind of haunting images of pogroms and persecution. 
This next painting shows uh, the binding of Isaac. It was completed in 1966. And here, uh, Abraham is being stopped by the angel from sacrificing his son. This, of course, is the Parsha that we read during Rosh Hashanah. But notice the figure. Do you see that? With the cross above Abraham. Themes of atonement, substitutionary sacrifice, suffering on the cross, they swirl all around in these very... Jewish paintings. Chagall was inextricably drawn to the figure of Yeshua. His fellow Jews, such as his rabbi, they tried to dissuade him from painting Yeshua. He said, this is what I want to do, and they were like, I don't think that that's a good thing to do. But Chagall felt compelled because Yeshua on the tree, it it gave meaning somehow to the anti-Semitism in Chagall's world. Chagall said that the act of painting Yeshua was, and this is a quote from him, an expression of the human Jewish sadness and pain which Jesus personifies. He also said, perhaps I could have painted another Jewish prophet, so he considered him a Jewish prophet, but after 2,000 years, mankind has become attached to the figure of Jesus. Unquote. Chagall has done something very bold here, something I think that we should do. We need to take back the image of Yeshua on the cross and frame it in Jewish terms. We need to not shy away from this image, but to embrace it. Chagall has shown Yeshua on the cross as an example of suffering, as an example of atonement, as an example of disgrace, and we can do the same. Now, in all my experience as a Messianic Jew, I have never heard a sermon focusing on the death of Yeshua on the execution stake, or as commonly called, the cross. And I think this is a weakness on the part of the Messianic Jewish movement. It may be because Jews aren't comfortable talking about the execution stake. It may be because the cross, very unfortunately, was actually a symbol of Jewish anti-Semitism and persecution for centuries. But we see how Chagall turned that around. It is an offensive symbol, unfortunately, to many Jewish people because of anti-Semitism. And even though Chagall was able to imagine Yeshua on the cross differently. He was exceptional. But whatever the reasons for avoiding this topic, we need to examine it closer because the scriptures examine it very closely. Now, there are four Besserot, or Gospels. Matthew, Matityahu, Mark, Luke, and Yohanan, or John. They recount the life of Yeshua, how he taught the Torah, how he healed the sick, how he fulfilled the Hebrew scriptures, how he is the king and promised Messiah, how he died, and how he was raised. These accounts, known as the Gospels, tell the gospel, by which I mean they tell the story of Yeshua as it fulfills 
the story of Israel. These gospels, which tell the story of Yeshua, I would describe them as lopsided. They tell the whole story of Yeshua's life. But have you ever noticed they focus a lot of text, a lot of attention on the end of his life, specifically the last week of Yeshua's life? It is about 40% or two-fifths of the entire gospel focus on this part. The whole of Yeshua's life and teaching are important, but this part of his life, the part leading up to and describing his death on the tree, this is disproportionately focused on in the Gospels. So the question is, why this emphasis on what is often called the cross? Well, let's look at some examples in the text. We have a very clear image of how Yeshua suffered on the tree in Matthew 27, starting in verse 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Yeshua into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him, took the staff, and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels, the thieves, who were, who were crucified with him, also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Yeshua cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is our picture of Yeshua's suffering. It's, it's in great detail in the scriptures. Moreover, Yeshua also talked about his own death beforehand. He prepared his Talmudim for this. In Matthew 16, 21, this is what we find. From that time on, Yeshua began, began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must, he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. This scripture explains that Yeshua began to explain this to his Talmudim, meaning that he did so more than once. 
And some of these other explanations are recorded in the Gospels. He again tells them that he's going to have to suffer and going to have to die. Yeshua repeatedly reminds his disciples about the need for his death and his suffering. Even after he is raised and appears to his disciples again, he has the same message. Let's try to imagine this. So in Luke 24, Yeshua has already died, and he's been resurrected, and now he's appearing to his Talmidim. He finds two of them on the road, and he walks with them a little while, but he doesn't reveal who he is, and they don't recognize him. And they're sort of lamenting, they're complaining, oh, our rabbi Yeshua has died, and uh, he wasn't found in the grave when they went to look for him where he was buried. And then this is what he says in verse 25. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Let's read this next verse together. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And these last two verses are the key here. The Messiah had to suffer and die, and all of this was according to the scriptures. What are the scriptures at this point? The scriptures are the Hebrew Bible. There's no, there's no new covenant written. The scriptures, the scriptures which talk about atonement, the scriptures which describe what happens on Yom Kippur, the scriptures, which talk about the near sacrifice of Isaac. Yeshua saw his own death and suffering as crucial to his own story and crucial to the story of Israel in the Hebrew Bible. And I believe that the best passage to sum up all of these ideas is found in Hebrews 13, verses 10 through 14. Let's read it. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Yeshua also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. This is a little bit complex, so let's look at it verse by verse. It's got a lot of things in it. Verse 10, we see here, it mentions the altar which we have in Yeshua apart from the tabernacle. As a whole, when we look at the book of Hebrews, we have to understand the, the purpose of this book. It's encouraging Messianic Jews to remain Messianic. At the time of the writing, they're being tempted to sort of drop the Yeshua part and just go back to being just Jews. So Hebrews is encouraging them by showing that Yeshua recalls the function of Moses, but also perfectly fulfills that function as a prophet and Torah teacher. The book compares Yeshua to the angels. He's similar to the angels, but more complete because the angels do not sit 
on God's throne like Yeshua does. Yeshua's covenant parallels, it recalls the first covenant, but it completes it because Yeshua's covenant enables God to write the Torah on our hearts. So looking at this passage again, I see two parallel themes up here. Number one, Yeshua and therefore his followers are outsiders. Remember that. Yeshua and his followers are outsiders. Outside the camp is, the, is, the, is what's used here. And number two, the heavenly altar is the full, perfect version of the earthly one. The heavenly altar is the full, perfect version of the earthly one. As we read, um, as Clarine um, so well read uh, in earlier part of Hebrews, it describes how the altar and the uh, temple, they're all copies of, there's actually a real one in heaven. So starting in verse 10, we have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. What is the altar that the author is talking about? It's not the altar in the Torah where the sacrifices are made, including on Yom Kippur, The altar for Messianic Jews, our altar, is the heavenly execution stake where Yeshua's sacrifice was made. The temple on earth was a replica pointing to the heavenly temple where Yeshua's sacrifice in the heavens atoned perfectly for our sins. He is the fullness of the atonement of Yom Kippur, of the Yom Kippur altar. So therefore, explains verse 10, it's saying we have a choice. We can either look to the tabernacle system, the earthly system, or to the heavenly altar of Yeshua on the tree. Does that make sense? Okay. So then we come to verses 11 through 14. I'm going to read it again. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned, what does it say? Outside the camp. And so Yeshua also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him again outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. So there are different kinds of sacrifices, and different things are done with them. The sacrifices are done on the altar, but the Yom Kippur offering is kind of special. The sacrifice for Yom Kippur is actually burned outside the camp. So this verse is actually referencing uh, another scripture in Leviticus. This is from Leviticus 16 verse 27. Let's take a look. Do we have it? Thank you. The bull and the goat for the sin offerings, whose blood was brought into the most holy place to make atonement, must be taken Outside the camp, their hides, flesh, and intestines are to be burned up. So this, this, the, um, the passage in Hebrews is saying Yeshua is like this offering because he gave his life outside of Jerusalem, outside of the temple. Based on the context of the book of Hebrews, my sense is that this passage is about the outsider status of Yeshua. He is an outcast. He's a prophet who's not always accepted. In following Yeshua, 
as a Jew was and is not always easy. Who are the ones outside the camp in, in Leviticus? These are, these are outcasts. These are unclean. The lepers would be outside the camp. So Yeshua made himself like that as, as an outsider. We Yeshua followers are all outside the camp, just like Yeshua was. The author was saying this, Yeshua was disgraced and suffered, so we should expect as much because of our choice to follow him. But ultimately, that choice to trust in Yeshua is worth it because the heavenly altar sacrifice is the fullness of atonement. You tracking with me? Does it make sense? Yom Kippur means day of atonement. The fullness of atonement, being right with God, is found only in the death of Yeshua on the tree. His sacrifice of himself completely and fully covers our sins. His death on the cross recalls the shofar, the Yom Kippur sacrifice, the binding of Isaac, the goal of the whole Torah, the suffering of Israel, the suffering of the Jewish people, the disgrace of the prophets. But it doesn't just recall these things. It brings them to their fullness, and it fulfills all of them. If you are here today, and you have not trusted in Yeshua's sacrifice as atonement for your sins, let this day of atonement be that day. You can say the following prayer with me in your heart, If you have already trusted in Yeshua, we can say this prayer together as a reminder of his atonement for us. Lord, we acknowledge that we have fallen short. We have sinned against you by our words and our actions. We admit that there is no way we can atone for these ourselves. We have come to the day of atonement to you as the righteous king on the throne, and we have nothing to stand on but your grace and mercy. We ask that you would look on Yeshua, that his sacrifice would be our atonement. We ask that you write us in your book of life because we accept Yeshua's death on the tree. And in Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.